0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall take a look at the reasons why Democrats lost rural America and why it's important to make gains outside urban centers through working-class coalitions and a focus on the policy failures of unchecked republicanism. Clips today are from Pitchfork Economics, Deconstructed, Jacobin Radio, The Rick Smith Show, the Tennessee Holler podcast with additional members-only clips from The Real News and The Dig.
1: I'd like to go down this politics road a little bit more. One of the things that you said in the piece is you talked about your dedication to good organizing. Mm-hmm. And really, writ large, the party uh, has done a lot of organizing. There's a real commitment to organizing in Wisconsin. I think Barack Obama famously made a lot of organizing commitments across the country especially in 2008 uh, and there is kind of a resurgence of organizing that's been going on but it wasn't enough to win Dunn county and you point that out can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the limits of organizing or maybe better put what is the positives and benefits of organizing because I don't think we want to disparage it but there are limits to it right because even after all that great work it wasn't it wasn't enough.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and just to start, I want to just say, like, I, I identify as an organizer. It's part of my DNA. I really believe that the change that we need to make in the world that's going to help the lives of real people is starts with getting real people involved in the process. And to me, that's the heart of good organizing. And I didn't mean to disparage organizing and saying, oh, it wasn't enough, so it's not important in my article. My hope in writing the article was to provide the perspective of someone who did dedicate his life to, you know, in in a volunteer capacity to organizing. I gave up my free time to make sure that I was getting my neighbors off the sidelines and having them take responsibility to get out the vote. But I kept on having these nagging thoughts while, while we were having conversations with voters and while we were recruiting volunteers and uh, doing all that grassroots work that I would have, I would have people On the phone or at the doors before the pandemic, ask me, Well, I don't see anything different in my life after the Obama administration. What's the Biden administration going to do for me? And there were those conversations with folks who live in rural communities where it was hard for us to point to something uh, that was going to change their life in a measurable, visible, tangible way. That was connected to their experience as a rural American. Um, and so, I, to get back to your question, I think organizing is an essential part of the process, especially in rural areas where you really need to have those relationships on a one to one basis where people can start trusting progressives in rural areas again. But if you don't have some kind of transformative vision or some big, audacious plan for how you're going to change people's lives that you can point to, when you're doing that work, it makes the organizing really, really difficult.
1: I'm an organizer, lifelong organizer like you. I think organizing is the central part of making progressive change in America. The reality is that at the end of the day, what we have on our side is people. And the only way you get people to express power is to organize them. So it's like, I agree. It's like an essential ingredient, but let's be honest, it's not enough, right? So- some of what you said in your piece really resonated with me. And I've got a lot of complaints about the way that Obama and team governed. Really, it's important to understand that you've got to do the organizing, but just as important, you have to do the delivering. Because yes. <laughs> what, what you've done when you've done organizing is you've, you've lifted people up and given them hope for a different tomorrow. Right. Yes, And uh, that's part of the key of organizing. It's like helping them believe that things can be different if they just Band together. But when you disappoint them and you don't deliver, it's really, really devastating. And as we know, Obama actually did very well uh, with rural America, particularly in the upper Midwest. But it collapsed. And I think the support for Democrats collapsed. And part of that is attached to the governing, right? The delivering. It was a really just a, honestly, a complete disconnect. If you went back and kind of read the things that Obama would say in speeches in places like Wisconsin, were put in television ads, and then you looked at his governing record, they, they couldn't be more opposite. <laughs> and I know you've said a little bit about that in your piece about this kind of notion that if you don't have an agenda that's going to deliver for rural people, it doesn't matter how much organizing you do or how much speechifying you do, you really have to deliver. Uh, could you talk about what your thoughts are on what it means to, to deliver and fight uh, for rural America?
2: Let me just start and say, like, I'm an organizer, I'm not a policy expert, so um, a lot of my thoughts just have to do really with starting the policy question by looking at people's lives in the community where you live and having an open heart and looking for where is the suffering happening and where are people experiencing that in their lives and then working backwards from there. Uh, to identify what are the policies that are actually going to change people's lives. And so really connecting it to people's experiences and and finding ways to, to change the material conditions that people find themselves in right now, because uh, the economic despair amongst the folks who I live around is palpable. So having some way to show that kind of change. And then recognizing that a lot of those policies, whether they're antitrust policies, or uh, changes to the for-profit healthcare system, passing those policies are going to require coming up against powerful interests. And for those policies to become reality, there's going to need to be some sort of fight. And the folks who I talk to around here, you know, especially like farmers, for example, they really understand the way the economic system works. And they really understand uh, how economic power works, how the companies that they buy their fertilizer and seed from have pretty much monopolized that sector or the the companies they sell their grain to they they can't go around and try to get the best price for their for their grain because there's only one or two buyers in the area so they understand this and so they know when a policy is proposed well there needs to be a fight because there's significant economic power surrounding them and surrounding the the communities that they live in
1: there's this horrible perception driven by you know elite media and folks who uh, live in in urban environments that somehow rural people are naive to power. People who live in rural America have a more sophisticated understanding of power arrangements than anybody I've ever spent time with in cities. And part of that is exactly what you just said which is they understand it at this very personal level like how it affects their crops, how it affects what they're trying to get to market, how the international markets affect the price for what they're producing. And then if you're not a farmer, there's also the dynamic of if you own a business in a small town, you know directly what it meant when Walmart came in.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I would add to that just that a lot of the uh, like local town boards and a lot of the school boards, people in the communities where I live in um, experience these really direct face-to-face relationships when it comes to like government in in their lives. And they often know the people who are their town chair and uh, who are the president of their school board and see them at the grocery store and talk with them at the coffee shop. And, And I think that adds to the perception of how power and resources work. And I would just add also too that when it comes to the understanding of power, I think there's this overwhelming feeling amongst my neighbors that a lot of the decisions that affect their life are made somewhere else culture happens somewhere else uh, capital flows somewhere else uh, decisions are made somewhere else and when you think about this idea of resentment uh, i think that's where a lot of this comes from that we're not in control of our own destinies here and i think this goes both ways in the rural urban divide that there that stereotypes are alive and well of rural people. And I think also of urban people, stereotypes held by rural folks, because there's not the cross pollination and the opportunities for those communities to go experience one another enough. So, you know, there's this often stereotype that, you know, everybody in rural America is a farmer. Well, it's certainly not the case. (laughs) Uh, And um, so you, you know, you get like political organizations wanting to develop a rural message. And it's, They often have a picture of a farmer in there, but, um, (laughs) uh, you know, and it becomes a caricature of itself. So that's like, I just appreciate you just mentioning that a lot of our perceptions of rural and urban can be based on those, on those stereotypes. But to the experience of like just living in rural America, um, you know, I grew up in Eau Claire and Chippewa Falls, which are very close to here. I chose to raise a family here. And I'm 40 years old, so one of the things that for me, and I think it's common amongst other of my neighbors, is that we often choose to spend our lives here, um, and we are not as mobile as I think other folks in the country have are, um, or at least at least that I know of. But um, so I have this. It's interesting to have this sort of 40 year time lapse video of my life, where hmm. I have seen. My community change over those decades, and having the memories of those barns that I see that are now empty and rotten, and the roofs are collapsed, knowing that those barns, uh, you know, when I was a kid, had thirty or, or forty cows in the in the bottom stalls, and um, were supporting uh, a small family business, and it was part of this sort of network of small farms that were. Really holding up the rural communities around here, and then to be able to fast forward now to myself as an adult, and I'm driving uh, into town after you know empty barn after empty barn, and then starting to see these um, large dairies, you know, that have two thousand cows in them now. It it's you're, I guess we just when you live here your whole life, you you experience the story um, and you experience that change uh, visually. And it's this, it's this feeling that you get back to that things are changing without really our own, without our voices being part of that process. I was talking to a dairy farmer last year and I don't know if his stats were right, but he, he's a smart dude. And he said in Dunn County in 1972, there were 1100 dairy farms just in our, our County. And then as of last year, he said there were 150 dairy farms. And so this whole feeling that like all these small businesses are blinking off the landscape and then you, uh, you know, businesses that you could actually raise a family with. And then you see these visual reminders of these empty barns. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it reminds you that the economy has changed and that it's harder and harder to get by around here. And also when you, when you're someone like me, a lot of my friends have left this area. I see more people having left than people having stayed. And so that's another feeling like well, the people who you grew up with are all are all gone because there's nothing to stay here for
3: so much of this debate around the approach to rural America that your that your book sparked, uh seemed to not actually get into the question of of what the party was saying. It was more about who to talk to and, um, how to talk to them, like in what form, but what about the, what about the message itself? Like what, is is there something that Democrats are doing wrong when it comes to the overall, uh, message or platform or kind of substantial program that they're running on that, that needs to, that needs to change.
4: Uh, I'm curious to hear, hear what Chloe thinks, but I think my, my answer to that is, is nationally, especially, um, as a party, it's, it, it's less an issue of, of what we're saying or not saying and, and more of an issue of, are we even in these spaces at all having a conversations, you know, back to your point at the very beginning of this conversation about kind of, the worry of the bottom dropping out of our margins in rural America. You know, you look at as recently as 2009, there was no, um, the partisan lean of rural voters was evenly split. And, and now it's a 16 point Republican advantage. And I attribute so much of that to the Democrats just not running strong campaigns and investing in grassroots organizing in rural spaces. We just haven't been present enough having the conversations and going door to door. And so what that's created is a huge, huge void that Fox News and right wing personalities and Trump have come into and, and filled. And, and that's led to a lot of extremism just because we kind of seeded that ground and, and haven't been there to push back on those narratives. Yeah, Chloe. What do you think?
5: Again, I think that canyon is spot on. I mean, I think you know, I we've we've had this experience as Democrats campaigning in more red places, and you know, we know that other other candidates have had the same experience too, where you're like, I'm a Democrat, but I'm not like the National Democrats. I'm a different type of Democrat, you know. And so, I think there is this space to really kind of reframe what it means to be a Democrat, and so that it it is kind of improving the national party and the national reputation from the ground up instead of the top down. I don't know if the if the top down is really going to work anymore. You know, like we've been saying, all, so much of this is about grassroots organizing and grassroots conversation that can slowly change the way that we're thinking about these issues. You know, I, I think our our theory of change is really rooted in the Democratic Party and and getting more Democrats elected and really expanding the party as well and saying, you know, hey, Democrats, like so many of the Republicans that we've written off, it doesn't have to be that way. And we can find this common ground and it doesn't have to be based on party warfare. It can be based on a united positive vision for the future where we're all just fighting for what we think is best for our families. I mean, That's the core of it. I think there's so much anger and strife, and so much of it is so needed and and so justified. But I think in a lot of these everyday conversations that are happening on the campaign trail, people are just coming at it from the space of you know, what's best for my daughter? What's best for my child who's in school right now? What's best for my, for my mother-in-law who's aging in place? You know, what's best for my family? And I think it's so easy to lose sight of that, but we can, we we can, we can fix it. We can fight back. We just gotta, we just gotta build grassroots movements in spaces where we might not expect them.
3: And I wonder if, if, and this is, this will sound pessimistic, I wonder if, The 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 brand of the Democratic Party can even be revived in in some of these areas I think in Maine, it's still strong in New England. You know, generally it's strong even in in rural areas I I grew up in a very rural area of Maryland and There when I was growing up the Democratic Party was still you know still there were still these kind of blue dog Democrats and there was a legacy of of Democratic power today in those areas it's very hard to find anybody outside of the, the kind of very liberal potluck club that would even remotely want to associate with the Democratic Party. And I've talked to some candidates who are running in different rural areas of the, of the country as Democrats, and they won't, they won't say it on the record, but they'll say that if they could somehow manage to run as an independent, yet still kind of have the, the backing of, of the party apparatus, they'd be so much better off that the brand of the Democratic Party – Uh, for better or for worse for for whoever's fault it is has just become so fundamentally toxic in some of these rural areas that it's hard to see them going going back from there that like i said that's not the case in maine obviously they've got a trifecta which they might lose as you said in 2022 big red wave coming
4: but what but what do you think is 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 it as is it as bad as that in some areas yeah i mean. I, that's a good question. It's a big question. I, I don't know the answer to it. I think. I mean, what canyon? What about where you're from? Like, the, I can't
3: imagine the Democratic Party as much of a as much it, of a shot, <laughs> no matter what kind of candidate they put up.
4: Yeah, it, it's not a good brand, but but it's not like the Republican Party is is a great brand either. You know, there's. I think uh, what comes to mind for me is just like there's a there's a really broad frustration with with the people. Who are in office and have been in office for, for years and years and both parties and just this system that doesn't feel like it's representing us. And, you know, I think, I think party leadership on, on both sides has a lot to do with that of, of just these folks who get in office and have stayed in office for years and years and years and just a really strong inertia that, that has led Led to where we're at today, and I, I won't give up on it completely. You know, I think I think there's a, I think it can be turned around to some extent. But I do, I do also think things like ranked choice voting, like we have in in Maine and some other states, where that allows independents or third party candidates to run without being a spoiler, are are important reforms. Or like fusion voting, like like they have in New York, where you can mm-hmm. get the be the nominee of multiple parties you can be the nominee for the working families party and the democratic party
3: isn't there kind of like a an independent nearby you chloe who's who's a progressive but doesn't isn't part of the party here in maine yeah
5: yeah there are there are to There are f- quite a few independents in the Maine House who, you know, kind of buck party politics and pave their own way. And uh, Maine is also very famous for Angus King, our, who was our mm-hmm. governor and uh, is now our one of our U.S. senators, who is also an independent.
3: Do you feel like that is almost a requirement in some parts of the country for Democrats or for progressives to make a revival?
5: I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's a, re- a requirement per se. I think what's more important is having a values-based politics and you know trying to get away from this really intense party identity that prevents us from having conversations across the aisle and, you know one of the things that um I've been working on here in Maine in, in my in my term here has been open primaries you know Wayne, Maine hasn't had open primaries before so independents have been left out of of really deciding who's on their November ballot and so we're we're changing that which means that a third of main voters are now going to be able to vote in primaries and decide you know what what does november look like and maybe you know that will also help tilt things away from this hyper partisan situation that we're in i i really think that it's okay to run as a democrat i think it's okay to run as a party i think it's just about how we how we talk about it how we approach it you know how we make sure that our allegiance is to the people and the values that we are talking about instead of to a party infrastructure
4: Yeah, I think that's totally right. And and being, you know, being willing and able to critique the party and the status quo and communicate to voters that, you know, that you are not (laughs) the the Democratic Party or you are not the Republican Party. And I think that that was a large part of the appeal of of folks like Bernie uh, or even Trump to, to rural voters is, you know, Bernie, Bernie was an independent for his whole life, but he he ran as a Democrat, and and was clear that he had lots of par- problems with the party, but that um, that was the best best vehicle for his campaign.
0: I want to tell you today about a show I think you should be checking out. It's called American Prestige, and they've been featured on the show before, but they also deserve a dedicated shout out. If you, like me, are not sure that world domination by the U.S. is the right path for either America or the rest of the world, or have questions about conventional geopolitical thinking, you may be looking for a new perspective that American prestige can provide every week on American prestige historian and former Bernie Sanders advisor Daniel Besner and journalist Derek Davison analyze u s foreign policy from a critical framework that sheds light on myriad topics related to international affairs if you 're curious to know what u s foreign policy would look like if the interests of all people in the world and not only rich Americans were taken into account then you have to tune into American Prestige, When we've featured them in the past, they've spoken on issues including the history of Islamophobia in the U.S., the Mexican-American War and the development of Mexico, and the role of NATO and the U.S. in response to the war in Ukraine. But of course, that's only scratching the surface. So listen and follow American Prestige on AmericanPrestigePod.com, on your favorite podcast app, and also in the Substack iOS app.
6: redistricting gets a lot of attention because it's so often overtly a partisan grab for power, gerrymandering is actually only a very small part of what's stopping Democrats and progressives from gaining more power at the national and even state level. The problem isn't limited to a handful of bad actors or even a reactionary political party like the GOP that's deliberately trying to undermine democracy. The larger problem is that the combination of A, the geographical concentration of Democratic voters in cities, and B, the very nature of winner-take-all elections structurally prevents Democrats from winning seats proportional to their share of the vote. Here's why. So take a look at this map. Most people who follow politics already know that while Democrats dominate elections in cities, Republicans consistently trounce them in rural areas. The reason this is such a problem, as political scientist Jonathan Rodden points out in his book Why Cities Lose, is that our current electoral system, which is made up of small districts that elect only one representative using a winner-take-all system, consistently disadvantages voters in cities. As Rodden writes, in many U.S. states, Democrats are now concentrated in cities in such a way that even when districts are drawn without regard for partisanship, their seat share will fall well short of their vote share. Because of where Democrats live, the very existence of winner take all geographic districts has facilitated the systemic underrepresentation of Democrats. In other words, because they're so heavily concentrated geographically, it's extremely difficult for Democrats to translate raw votes into seats both in Congress and in state legislatures. And while Republican gerrymandering certainly exacerbates the problem, the consistent underrepresentation of Democrats will never fully vanish as long as we keep our current electoral system of people voting in small districts that elect only one winner-take-all representative. So what does this all mean for a left that's trying to find some way of achieving reforms like Medicare for All on a national level? To put it bluntly, it means we can't just stick to racking up wins in cities. First, it is important to note that the American left, small as it is at the moment, is arguably in better shape now than it was a decade ago. Particularly over the last five years, the ranks of the Democratic Socialists of America have grown to nearly 95,000 members with at least one chapter in every state. Dozens of self-identified Democratic Socialists have been elected to city councils and state legislatures across America, and we now even have a few Socialists in Congress. As Jacobin contributor Jared Abbott recently put it, this is no minor achievement given many previous decades in the political wilderness. However, geography is still a serious hurdle. Most of the left's wins to date have been concentrated in urban centers, much like the base of the Democratic Party itself. Progressive Congress members like AOC and socialist state legislators overwhelmingly represent solidly Democratic districts in major cities, which means that we on the left face the exact same structural constraints as our moderate Democrat counterparts in national and state elections. To quote Jared again, it is becoming increasingly clear that the tried and true method of picking off centrist Democrats in deep blue districts is reaching its strategic limit. In other words, it's essential for the left to start building a larger and more geographically diverse working-class constituency, which means contesting elections in rural areas and small towns in order to gain some leverage nationally. There's also obviously a moral and ethical component. Simply put, rural America has been devastated by neoliberalism. This shouldn't be too much of a surprise. Capitalists have found it more profitable to locate the hubs of their businesses in cities. As Professor Mark Edelman wrote in Jacobin in 2020, since the turn to more cutthroat free market policies in the 1980s, American capitalism has systematically underdeveloped rural and small town regions of the United States. The 2008 crash poured gasoline on the fire. Mutual savings banks and credit unions, cooperatives, mom and pop businesses, local industries and newspapers, health and elder care facilities, schools and libraries have all fallen victim to relentless austerity policies or private private equity raiders. So this is to say that over the past several decades, rural areas have suffered from chronic underinvestment, crumbling physical infrastructure and the swift erosion of social institutions. Since 2005, more than 180 rural hospitals have closed and at least 21 have shut down since the start of the pandemic. We also know well at this point that opioid use and incarceration have skyrocketed in rural America, as have so-called deaths of despair or suicide, drug overdose and alcohol related liver disease. Now, winning rural voters is, of course, much easier said than done. And to call the situation before us an uphill battle is probably an understatement. In 2016, for instance, a majority of rural voters held a negative view of all of the candidates running in the Democratic presidential primary, including Bernie Sanders, though it probably has to be said that rural voters did rate Sanders least negatively out of all the Democratic candidates. But the point is that even if we're starting from square one under our current political system, there are few alternatives to winning more rural voters. Moreover, if the left cannot break out of the cities, and particularly the more affluent precincts within those cities, our entire political project will flounder within America's rigid electoral system, and the few progressives that are elected will find it increasingly difficult to avoid working with corporate Democrats. In other words, we can't settle for our current clustering within urban centers, no matter how well we're doing there and no matter how many centrist Democrats we manage to defeat. The viability of our entire project depends on successfully organizing working people outside of cities.
7: What is United Rural Democrats and and why did you start this?
8: So I worked a couple campaigns in 2020 when I was still in college. I'm actually still a junior at Iowa State. And it was very clear to me after working those two campaigns in Iowa and Wisconsin that there was something fundamentally wrong with the country and how are people reacting to its government and its just general system. So I took it upon myself to travel 110,000 miles since the 2020 election. And I've interviewed people in 45 or 46 states trying to figure out what the heck is going on. What is this malaise and what is the cost of it? And what it's come down to for me is that a lot of people feel like nobody cares about them anymore and it has allowed some of our darkest elements as humans to take hold and i think there's no better evidence of that than the rise of donald trump over the past 8 or so years
7: yeah the the reality is is you know we like like you i've traveled this country and been to rural communities across the country where you know back in the and when i was a kid you know they had a factory they had an image they had an identity uh, they they had the town was this this manufacturing plant and, and that has been stripped from them and they've been left with nothing. And well, they've been left to languish and a government that, that doesn't seem to care. And I, I point to, a, you know, a representative in Ohio when he was asked, uh, Hey, you know, well, can you help, help us with our, 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 our town? The, the, the jobs have left. What should we do? And the guy goes, move. And you go, no, that's not the answer you want from your, your government. Um, uh, and I guess not surprising. He was a Republican
8: not at all. Um, A little anecdote I always like to tell people is that, you know, the Republican Party, they have nothing in terms of an agenda right now, aside from being divisive and bigoted, because I worked as a clerk at the Iowa legislature this session. And you might have seen the news about our transgender sports bill that was just a it was just state sanctioned bullying. But what you may not have known is at the same time, I believe the same day, a bill that would have gut food stamps for 99% of Iowans also was put up now that vote gratefully died but it shows that they're trying to use this culture war to push a sinister agenda that not only hurts marginalized communities but will hurt everyone
7: and this is the part that i think is, is most important because you know i've argued for a very long time that right-wing talk radio the dominant talk radio in this country overwhelmingly you know you know, there was a study done a couple of years ago that 90% of talk radio in this country is is of the right-wing conservative fashion. Uh, their model is based on, on pitching the outrage candy. You know, you got these chaos merchants who just keep slamming this stuff, you know, the transgender stuff down people's throats, and they never bother with the follow-up that you just put out there. The fact that, While they're pushing the outrage candy, they're literally trying to starve families and, and, and children and all of this. That's the outrageous part to me. And this is where I think the other shoe has to fall where you have to talk to people and explain, look, you know, there's the outrageous stuff that, you know, may get you all fired up, but this should get you even madder. The fact that we're going to literally take food off the, off the tables of children. That's what gets me more upset than anything.
8: I absolutely agree. And after interviewing a lot of people, I think that the conclusion I came to was that a lot of people simply feel like nothing matters anymore. There's almost a degree of nihilism in a lot of these communities that like my children are going to have a worse future than me. And there's absolutely nothing I can do about it because my local leaders, Democrat or Republican, don't care, although most often Republican.
7: So how do we how do we begin to change that, Joe? Because look, I'm I'm somebody who believes that that we while we still can, we have the power to vote. We have the power to change things. We can make different choices. I I still believe that to my core. If I didn't, well, I I would probably be nihilistic, and I would probably be one of those folks that hey, it doesn't matter. Let's tear everything down and and re restart. Um, how how do we how do we how do we begin that?
8: This almost sounds reductive, but I think we have to sort of normalize what a Democrat is. Because when I visit communities, oftentimes they'll say that Democrats are gun-grabbing baby killers who want to do this and that. It's like, no, I just, I want you to have health care. I want you to have a good paying job, and I want your family to have a good education. I think we need to do two things, and they're intertwined. We need to get back into these communities. And I know it's going to be hard, because I know a lot of them are hostile territory these days. But we need to make it clear to people that even in communities that are 40% Democrat, you would think the Democrats are like dinosaurs. They didn't. They existed at one point, but they don't exist now. What we need to do is get back out into these communities and make the Democrats like the Kiwanis of the Lions Club of the local church, just another community within the community. That's how the Republican Party took over at the local level over the course of the last 40, 50 years. They just became part of the community in rural areas because before the 1980s or 1990s, the Democrats in much of the country were sort of the baseline political party for the largely apolitical
7: no, I don't disagree with you. and It's something I've been saying, oh, I don't know, almost every day that I've been doing this program for the last 17 years that you have to get in there and you have to fight where the fight is, which is why, you know, our program is in a lot of rural communities and, and people go, well, why, why do you do your program from one of the reddest areas in the country? Because this is where it needs to be heard most. This is where we have to have these conversations. This is where you have to have a pro-labor message and talk about wages, hours, conditions. You need to talk about about how we're going to move forward and make lives better and and because for me you know a lot of these issues Joe it's not right or left it's it's not a democratic or a republican issue it's 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 up down it's it's wealthy versus the rest of us and what's happened over the years is we've created an environment where wealth inequality in this country which i think is the biggest problem that we've got facing us is grown bigger and more more all encompassing and at some point it's going to be our downfall
8: I absolutely agree. I think that one issue I've seen, and it goes back to why a lot of people gravitate towards Donald Trump. I think that after talking to so many people who voted for President Trump after being lifelong Democrats, it's clear that like Donald Trump is what a lot of people envision a rich person to be. You know, I think one thing that a lot of people who are in politics sometimes forget is a lot of working class people—they may resent the rich, but everyone wants to be rich. Sure, and I. Th- that we have to make sure that, you know, you can climb that ladder, but when you get to the top, you're not pulling it up with you. And I think that that kind of old, I think that's a line from Tom Harkin, even we have to make that our message again, because, you know, we can't, we can't keep doing what we're doing.
7: And, and so what do you say to that? Cause look, you know, I, I, I've got a lot of friends who are, you know, died in the wall, you know, Trump supporters, Uh, And and, as you said, you know, know, baby killer, gun grabber that uh, and and then and then all of the culture war stuff, um, because it's what they've been spoon fed. Um, How do you then how do you bring back that messaging? because look i'm i'm not going to walk away from uh the the lgbtq community i'm not going to walk away from from race relations i'm not going to walk away from some of the other things that that the republicans beat democrats up for uh, because i do believe in in life liberty pursuit of happiness i believe in equality for everyone not just a select few how do you how do you bridge those those d- gaps and those divides in in a moment where hyper nationalism you know, white supremacy seem to be the Republican mantra and and seem to be very pervasive in, in rural America, or is that too generalizing, do you think? I think the key is
8: trust. I think that at this moment in time, we are running out of time to fix this issue in rural areas. But I think the major key is that there are still some people in local and state leadership in very Trumpy areas. I know, for example, the state of Pennsylvania has some state reps who are Democrats who represent Trump plus 30 or 40 districts. And that's not because the people of those districts view them as a Democrat. It's because they trust them and they know them as their guy or their gal. And I think what we really need to do is focus on those local levels. Because if you look at polling, your local elected officials, you know, your city council and your mayor, all those guys have a lot better approval ratings than Congress or even state legislators. So I think what we need to do is build up from the bottom, grassroots. We need more, you know, city councilors, county commissioners, mayors. Uh, whatever local position your community may have. And I think that once we know that, you know, this guy is going to do right by the people, this person is going to be looking out for me, then we can more easily bridge those gaps because that person's already trusted. It's not some out of towner pushing a new idea. It's Bill from up the street who you've known for 20 years and you trust. And I think that if you have trusted leaders in your communities who are able, those are the people who must and can bridge those gaps still. And we need more of them. And I think, you know, to anyone listening, I think the first step is to, you know, either build local party infrastructure or run for office at the, you know, local level yourself because that's what we need right now. Yeah. We need more trusted guides to these communities because the culture divide is just getting worse over time.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by ExpressVPN and I have been a customer of theirs for years. So I am pretty happy to tell you about them. Firstly, if you're not familiar with the VPNs, They're sort of like an invisibility cloak and a skeleton key for the entire internet all in one. They protect your privacy by shielding your web traffic from prying eyes who want to micro-target you with ads and do other even more nefarious things. And they help you access restricted content around the world by letting you spoof your location. I've tried a few VPNs, and I really can say that ExpressVPN is the one that I've had the best experience with. And look... If all that cloak and dagger doesn't feel necessary to you, the truth is that the most frequent usage of VPNs is to unlock movies and TV shows that are available in other countries. Like Netflix has different libraries for each country. If you're waiting for the new season of Better Call Saul to show up on Netflix, well, it's already available in the UK, just as one of thousands of examples. All you have to do is fire up the ExpressVPN app, change your location to the UK, refresh Netflix, and that's it. But it's not just Netflix. It works with nearly any streaming service and is ridiculously fast, so you can easily stream in HD, and it's compatible with all your favorite devices. As I said, I've been an ExpressVPN user for both privacy and digital globetrotting purposes for years now. It really is the must-have app for any citizen of the world on the internet. And if you visit expressvpn.com slash best of the left, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. And of course, you support the show when you use our link. You can watch what you want, protect yourself and everything. ExpressVPN at expressvpn.com slash best of the left.
6: It's very well known that Democrats currently dominate in cities. Uh, Cities are overwhelmingly Democrat. They're sort of starting to take over suburbs. But they struggle in rural areas. So there's kind of a political component. And then, of course, when we talk about the rural urban divide, um, a lot of kind of, I think, cultural issues come to mind as well. So you obviously have been writing and thinking about this subject for a long time. As I mentioned, you yourself are a rural resident. So what do you see at, how do you define the rural urban divide to begin with? And what do you see as kind of the main sources driving this divide?
9: Sure. And it's it's a, a fairly extensive list of things driving the divide, but we've uh, myself and my colleagues at Ruby have kind of narrowed it down to the top half a dozen or so underlying causes. But we see the divide first of all, more fundamentally, as an economic divide, yes, uh, and and cultural. I'd say is pretty foundational as well. The political divide, in my thinking, has mostly followed from the economic and cultural divide. So. When when we do our trainings and write and speak about the rural-urban divide, we always start with an economy that has failed at least 80% of Americans. We talk a lot about the top 1%, but actually the top 20% have done pretty well through most things. But the bottom 80%, the mass of us, have not done so well for a lot of reasons, from the complete uh, abrogation of our responsibility around antitrust and how uh, corporate Monopolization has taken over almost every economic sector uh, to terrible farm policy to uh, investor driven trade policy and on and on. Now, that's failed most working Americans, most Americans across the board, but it is particularly catastrophic for the past four decades or so. In rural areas, because rural areas have tended to be much less diverse economically, mm-hmm. whether they're a kind of a manufacturing sort of so-called Rust Belt town, whether they're more agricultural, whether they're like Appalachia where maybe they had coal, timber, and tobacco, we've we've been much more concentrated in the economic uh, basis, and as a result. These bad economic policies that have hurt everybody have devastated rural communities. To us, that's the starting point. Yes. We know there's lots of other factors, but when the, the economy has essentially abandoned you or just extracted from you for generations, you're pretty predisposed to get pissed off. And unfortunately, on the political side... The right has been way more effective, not in solving the problems of rural right. communities, but in speaking to the anger and the frustration. Whereas on our side, sort of somewhere on the spectrum of Dems, liberals, progressives, we've either pretended it isn't a problem, blame the people who are angry because of their own, uh, you know, parochialism, racism, whatever. Um, or or simply, here's, the, here's the, the most recent version, simply decided that all we have to do is use better messaging to convince these people that we're actually on their side. And so all those things have kind of added up. Now, with the economic, um, the foundation of a, an economy that has extracted from and, and degraded so many rural communities and small towns, then you have the cultural differences that are real. Mm-hmm. Um, also then become not just differences, but become flashpoints and become yes. further fuel for the the fire of the divide. I'll, I'll give you one example is around environmental policy. Now, I'm an organic farmer. Yes. I've been advocating for good environmental things for most of my life um, and in the last 10 years or so, particularly around climate change. But the message from our side about the environment to to rural places. And and let's remember that it's the rural places that are most intimately connected to the environment, right? Whether you're fishermen, farmers, uh, foresters, and loggers, even the drillers and the miners, mm-hmm. they depend on the environment in a much more immediate and direct way than most urban and suburban people do. We do in rural areas. Yes. And yet, most rural people hate environmentalists. So, Why why is that? How could that be? It's not because they actually hate the environment or that they don't believe in uh, conservation and stewardship of the resources. It's that they feel that all they've heard in relation to the environment is that they are the problem. Mm -hmm. And that what we have to do is shut down their mines, shut down their big ag farms, shut down their logging operations, and then we'll take care of the environment. Meanwhile, while we're getting that message We know that all the people giving us that message still eat, still turn their lights on, still use wood and fiber and materials in their lives. And so it creates this deep resentment over people not really understanding just how challenging it is. To utilize the environment to the benefit of people, but not to the de- de- detriment of the ecosystem. That, that's mm-hmm. no, that's no easy proposition. Right. And yet rural people by and large feel they've been put in a place kind of a no win. So right. that's, that's one example about how the failure of the economy has then exacerbated the sort of perspective and cultural differences.
6: I I want to follow that up with a kind of um, similar question, because I think that's something that we hear quite a lot is that, you know, there's there's a sort of condescending stereotype, right, that people in rural areas, especially rural uh, poor people, quote, vote against their interests, right, when they're casting ballots overwhelmingly for Republicans. And you're rolling your (laughs) eyes already. So uh, so I was going to ask, how do you respond to this other than with just the eye roll?
9: Right, right, right. (laughs) So I, I don't know who it was that said this, but I saw a quote, or maybe I heard somebody on a call say it's less about people voting against their own interests than people looking for someone, some party who mm-hmm. has their interests mm-hmm. at heart. Yes, that's that's the big difference. So you know, it's easy for for not just city folk, but but liberals and progressives more generally to look and say that, that people are voting, working class generally are voting against their own interests, rural people voting against their own interests. But but the truth is, neither political party in our two-party system has paid much attention to these interests at all. Yes. Now, I'm not somebody who believes that there's no difference between the Dems and the Republicans, especially the modern Republican Party, which is off the rails. But it is true that neither party has consistently addressed the needs, the issues, or the opportunities there.
10: When we are trying to convince people to change this, including in elections, what I would, my best advice is most of what you and I are discussing is not what I would put in a 30 second ad. It's too political. You talk about this in a way that has some broader appeal, and that goes back to what I said before about red parts of your state. The consequences of broken, undemocratic state houses are horrible public outcomes on things that people really care about. Their local school system is not doing as well. They're having to pay more for their kid to play sports because the state is defunding schools. In Texas, the energy grid collapsed so that people froze to death. Well, how does that
11: happen? Does that happen because they put themselves first?
10: It's, it happens because, and this will sound dramatic, but it's true, the entire ammo of state houses where no one knows who they are, but major private players are posted up in the state capitol getting everything they want is a massive transfer of public assets to private players that do know what state houses do and love this system. In Ohio, the best example, public school money, a school system in Ohio ranked fifth in the nation 15 years ago, bleeding into for-profit online charter school scams that are disastrous for education. And one was caught making up numbers about attendance to make more money. What's happened? Our public school systems are now ranked in the mid-20s when they were fifth. The energy grid in Texas privatized. These big private players individually and through groups like ALEC, national group that's organizing all of them, at the trough. Pulling out public resources from states. And that's why tied to the hip to these undemocratic state houses is trickle down economics, a lot of this privatization, pay for play, and in some cases, corruption. And I guarantee you in every state where it's really taken hold, terrible public outcomes. If you're running for governor of, of a state like this, focus on those public outcomes that most people will agree are bad. We have a governor of Kansas, Laura Kelly, Democrat. How did she win? They were down to four days a week for school. They'd so defunded everything four days a week. If you Google her ads, she doesn't talk about Chris Kobach, who she could have and all they did on voting. We sh- that would have been a great campaign. It would have been true. She says, I'm from Kansas. When I grew up here, our number one value was education. What in the world is happening that we were down to four days a week in school? In Texas, it's the energy grid. That's what Beto's talking about. In Michigan, it was fix the damn roads. Every one of these state houses immediately as a response to the crumbling of democracy will be public outcomes that are indefensible, that can't be explained away, that are an automatic outcome. And that's how I think we say to places all over the states, way beyond just core Democrats, this is why we need to change. This form of broken government is failing all of us and you in particular.
11: Privatization, you're talking about charter schools at the trough. That's making me want to just play this clip for you because this is what we're dealing with right now here in Tennessee, the head of Hillsdale College in Michigan, a private Christian school that Governor Lee just announced a partnership with. And this guy is on tape last year, at the end of last year, saying that Governor Lee asked him to bring 100 charter schools to Tennessee. So that right there is what you're talking about. That is a privatization of public resources. Meanwhile, Governor Lee has control of a statewide charter school approval board to overrule when local communities don't want these schools and here comes this siphoning off of public resources that you're talking about
10: right now by the way there are some charter schools that do okay yeah in ohio we have found that that most of them have been a total disaster the for-profit ones especially the online ones especially you know republicans in ohio were literally all they cared about was online virtual school until the pandemic. And all of a sudden they flipped, but they were for it for a decade because that was their biggest donor. Folks like us need to pinpoint in our state, what are the most broadly impactful public outcomes that have collapsed because of these broken places? And that's what we need to campaign on. A huge issue is the state of our small towns dying right in front of us, You know, unpaved streets, main streets that are empty. Why? Lack of infrastructure and trickle down economics never helps these people. It helps the people in a few of the big cities, the state capitals. Every one of us needs to figure out what are the inevitable public outcome consequences of broken government in our state and run and talk about those as much as you can because they are direct consequences of these state houses being locked up in these undemocratic ways.
11: You know, the problem is even as those things are happening, they are standing up at things like the state of the state saying how great everything is going You know, we're at the bottom in poverty, at the bottom in infant maternal mortality, number one in medical bankruptcies right here in Tennessee. And Governor Lee stands up there and talks about how great we're doing. Things like the holler, or you know, people like you speaking these truths is really important so that people understand what's actually going on. And so that's why I appreciate what you're doing. Just as a final thought here, then I'll let you go. What should people be doing other than buying your book, which we want people to do? You know, what can people be focused on to uh, to get things turned around here?
10: The best way to combat what you just said is to have a candidate in every district who's from the district, obviously, because they're the ones who will know and capture. Governor Lee may say everything's great, but we know this town is not doing as well as it needs to. Let's get to work. So when we do not run in every district, it's the greatest gift ever to what you just described. They get to have a monopoly on the conversation, tell everyone's everything's perfect. And if we don't run a candidate, no one local with credibility is saying what I think a lot of people would actually agree with if someone put it together. That gets me to my broader point is all of us have to be broader champions of democracy. Whether you're a candidate for office like you've been, and thank you for doing that, that's a incredibly, you know, as patriotic as it gets, especially in tough races. Whether you're a small business person, whether you're you know a local official, whether you're just an everyday activist, all of that. Every one of us has a footprint in democracy. We have a footprint of influence. How can we use our footprint to lift democracy in any way possible? And I, I, I worry that we wait for heroes. You know, Stacey Abrams will do it or, you know, Michelle Obama is going to register voters and we just wait. We'll never hit the scale we need if that's how we attack it. If anyone listening to this call, if anyone in any holler anywhere in this state is on the on uh, the board of a homeless shelter or a food bank, Or a nonprofit serving kids? As a member of that board, have you said to that group, are we registering voters? We know they're being purged. Are we registering them? If you have a friend who's the mayor of a small town, are they using the footprint of their city hall? You know, the rec center, the health clinic, the library, whatever they do, are they using it to engage democracy? Are they registering voters who come to the rec center? A small business. Jared Brown once in Ohio was secretary of state. He had McDonald's have a voter registration document as part of the menu on the tray. If there's a business doing that, do you go to that restaurant and eat because of it? Do you tell other people to? That's what I'm talking about. Think creatively of everything you do, how you can bring lifting democracy into the bloodstream of your day-to-day activity. If you can run for office or support someone running for office, do it right away, especially in districts that aren't being challenged. But beyond the actual elections, there are many other things everyone can do to lift democracy. I would challenge folks to think through what how they can do that as well. When they're attacking democracy every single day, which they are, that's the way you scale up to fight back. So that would be my challenge to everyone listening. Are you doing all that? Because you can. And in many cases, it's a slight adjustment to what you do and you can do it.
0: We've just heard clips today starting with Pitchfork Economics discussing the failure of Democrats to make noticeable, positive change in rural America. Deconstructed looked at how to repair the damaged Democratic brand. Jacobin Radio explained that more than just gerrymandering is holding back Democratic gains. The Rick Smith Show discussed more ideas on Democrats regaining trust. Jacobin Radio looked at ways Democrats turned their backs on the bottom 80%. And the Tennessee Holler podcast argued that Democrats should make their case by highlighting the terrible outcomes of unopposed Republican governance. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The Real News speaking with Thomas Frank about the moment that Democrats decided to abandon the working class.
3: I start in the late 1960s. There was an enormous change in the Democratic Party, a lot of it for the better. This is in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, when the Democratic Party decided to sit down and reform itself. And they basically decided to remove organized labor from its structural position within the Democratic Party. Uh, This is the famous McGovern Commission in the early 1970s
0: and The Dig, looking back at the 90s Democrats and the impacts of the new liberal order and globalization. In his 1999 State of the Union address, Clinton said, quote, Our greatest untapped markets are not overseas. They are right here at home. And we should go after them by building a bridge from Wall Street to Appalachia to the Mississippi Delta to our Native American communities. A few years prior, soon after the passage of NAFTA, quote, If we simply can apply our international economic policy to South Central Los Angeles, Harlem, Milwaukee, Detroit, you name it, the Mississippi Delta, South Texas, we're going to do just fine in this country. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership, because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And now today, I just want to highlight... To me, what is the biggest takeaway, which is that the divide in our country should so much more clearly be seen as the divide between the top and the bottom, not the left and right or rural and urban. As members heard in more detail, Democrats made the conscious decision to abandon unions and working people to focus on the professional class, while Republicans have basically never been interested in helping anyone who couldn't fund their campaigns and this was sort of the birth of the fallacious idea that there's no difference between the parties. There are huge differences between the parties and yet they both are basically fighting for the support of only slightly different segments of the rich while mostly ignoring the bottom 80% entirely. And it has been said many times that Republicans fear their base With pretty good reason. I mean, we've seen their base physically assault the US Capitol and threaten to kill politicians, including their own vice president. While on the other side, Democrats tend to loathe their own base. But the thinking goes, according to establishment Democrats, that the base of the party doesn't have anywhere else to go. Because, I mean, look at the Republicans. You're not going to vote for them. So you're obviously going to vote for us. And so they can be taken for granted. Now, if you were to govern in a way that actually delivered the goods for people while you continue to hate them, then you could probably get away with that, to be honest. But after decades of neoliberalism and general disintegration of society, leaving everyone feeling quite on edge with next to no safety net below us to give a sense of stability, the most dangerous part of ignoring the middle class and the poor is is that it leaves the door wide open for a toxic mix of right-wing economic populism, racism, scapegoating, and authoritarianism to start to sound really appealing. And if you think that no one could have seen this coming, no one could have possibly imagined that ignoring the bottom 80% of the country might have some dangerous repercussions, I urge you to go read It Can't Happen Here, written in, I think, the 30s, basically predicting exactly what we're experiencing at this moment. So anyway, that toxic mix of right-wing economic populism mixed up with everything else. Now, for some, that is going to sound naturally appealing, and that's fine. Those humans are always going to exist, and there's nothing we can do about it. But to others, it's going to sound like the lesser of two evils, And it is that group of people who feel desperate enough to support right-wing economic populism for lack of a left-wing alternative that is actually capable of tipping the balance and leading to an absolute disaster waiting to happen. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, Bry for short. For their volunteer work, helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.